ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, tai chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, FP Playlist listeners. This is Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy. For this week's playlist, we're featuring the latest interview from FP Live, our magazine's forum for live journalism, where we discuss world affairs with the greatest minds and experts. Take a listen. Hello and welcome to FP Live, Foreign Policy's Forum for Live Video Journalism. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. My guest today is one of the most senior figures in President Joe Biden's administration. She's charged with executing America's foreign policy. And in a moment, we'll hear from her, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the United States Ambassador to the United Nations. Before we go to her, a few ground rules. If you've attended one of these before, you know the drill. Uh, you're probably also noticing our snazzy new live site. You can scroll through it and watch all of our previous interviews and related articles. If you're coming to us for the first time, FP Live is where we convene experts and policymakers to discuss world affairs. Unlike cable TV, there are no ad breaks and we get to dive deep into the issues. If you're an FP subscriber, it's a perk of your subscription to get to ask questions. And indeed, we have dozens of them coming in already, which will help inform some of my own line of questioning. Now, we're a week away from the top high-level meetings of the United Nations General Assembly. This is when heads of state from all over the world will come to New York to discuss their goals and their vision for a better world. It is no secret that the United Nations faces some of the biggest challenges to its mission, yet that mission to protect international peace and security is at risk. The war in Ukraine poses the largest threat to Europe's peace and security since the end of the Cold War. That threat makes it harder to cooperate on some of our other big global problems, the food crisis, energy security, and climate change. So let's bring in our guest. Linda Thomas-Greenfield is a highly regarded career diplomat and well-known to our audience. She's had key postings in places all over the world, like Pakistan and Nigeria. She is, of course, today America's ambassador to the United Nations. Ambassador Thomas-Greenfield, welcome to the program. Ravi, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. It's our pleasure. It's great to have you here. So let's start straight with the news, Ambassador. Ukraine's gains in the last few days uh, in Kharkiv are nothing short of stunning. Uh, talk us through that a little bit. How does it change from your perspective, the trajectory of the war? Look, we have expressed our strong support for Ukraine and given our support to Ukraine to defend itself from the beginning of this war. And this is a reflection of that commitment to ensure that they have what they need to defend themselves. And they have done that 
over the course of the past six months, uh, pushing uh, back on uh, efforts of, of the Russians to compromise their their borders and uh, and to uh, really uh, they work to defend their sovereignty and their independence. Um, obviously, much of the, the recent gains are in part because of much help, military and otherwise, from the United States, also uh, NATO member countries in Europe. Um, talk us through a little bit about how much America, at least, can sustain uh, that help over the coming months. Look, we've been consistent. We've been consistent even before this war started in making a commitment to supporting Ukraine and working with NATO and our allies uh, to ensure that they have what they need to defend themselves. And that commitment is ironclad. Uh, the commitment is long term and uh, we're here to stay as it relates to Ukraine. Uh, Europe has been unified. NATO has been unified. Uh, our country has been unified in its support for Ukraine, and that will continue until Russia makes a decision to pull their troops out of Ukraine and in this unconscionable war. You know, just strategically, given uh, all of your experience uh, as a diplomat, but now specifically at the United Nations, what do you expect will change in the coming months? Let's say if the current trend um, of Ukraine making some gains, recapturing some of uh, its territory, Russia having to sort of recede back a little bit, what do you expect to change given, given the latest state of play at the United Nations? You know, I can't predict that, but what I can say is that we want to see Ukraine be in a position where it is strong when they go to the negotiating table with uh, with the Russians. And that it has always been our goal. It's been our goal to consolidate support for Ukraine at the United Nations. We were able to get 141 countries to condemn Russia, 120 plus countries uh, suspended Russia from the Human Rights Council. And over the course of the next few weeks and months, we want to strengthen uh, Ukraine's support here at the, uh, at the UN. Uh, we want to continue to isolate Russia and we want to continue to condemn Russia until this unconscionable war comes to an end. You know, um, 141 countries, of course, it's a lot. It does also sound impressive, but there were many countries um, that either abstained or, or worse. Um, there are many countries around the world that have um, refused to sort of directly uh, um, sanction Russia to join some of the American-led uh, sanctions. Uh, and these are big countries, countries with large populations. Think of India um, or its neighbors, many countries in Africa and Southeast Asia, China, of course. Um, is it your sense, given that uh, you know, and, and again, given your vantage point at the UN, is it your sense that the world is divided, uh, despite all these numbers coming in support um, of, of the, the sort of the sanctions against Russia? The fact remains that a majority of the population of the world uh, is represented in countries that did not. You know, the countries have to make their own choices about how they will view this war. And it is our place and it's important for us to help those countries understand why there is no neutrality when it comes to an attack on the UN Charter. 
And so we have worked assiduously over the past six months to uh, convince countries to share with them the information that we have of the kinds of actions that the Russians are taking in Ukraine that cannot be defended. Uh, and we've said over and over that neutrality in the face of an attack on the UN Charter is very, very hard to defend. But countries do have to make their own choices. We know that 141 is huge. Uh, I don't think the Russians expected to be condemned by that many countries, and they didn't expect to be suspended uh, from the Human Rights Council. Uh, again, we will continue to make the case for Ukraine. We will continue to make the case for the UN Charter, and we hope that countries will decide uh, to be on the right side of, uh, of the Charter. You know, um, I just want to draw our um, readers and our viewers to an important speech you gave uh, in San Francisco at the historic Fairmont Hotel, um, where the UN convened in 1945. Um, I urge our viewers to read the transcript of that. Um, you were just describing some of the points that you made um, in that speech. But one of the things you said um, in that speech was that it's wrong to call the war in Ukraine a, a new Cold War. And in other words, um, you know, you went on to make the point you just made, um, which is that Russia's attack on Ukraine is in effect an attack on the UN Charter. But given that, uh, you know, is there any enforcement mechanism? So coming up next week, do you see at the UN, given what you say about the attacks on the UN Charter, can we do anything about that? Uh, we can certainly continue to do what we have done, and I can tell you without any uh, lack of, uh, with, with total confidence, that the Russians are feeling the pressure of the isolation that they that has been imposed on them since they started this war. They are feeling the pressure on their economies, and they have tried to turn that pressure on uh, to many of the countries that, as you note, have taken what they consider to be a neutral stance. But what the Russians are doing is indefensible. Uh, what they are doing in Ukraine constitutes war crimes. And we have to continue, absolutely continue to expose what they're doing and hold them accountable. So let me ask you, frankly, then, Ambassador, do you think the UN is doing enough on, on that front? I think the UN as an institution is the only institution that we have to hold any country accountable. And Russia is a member of the Security Council uh, and behaving in, in a way that is not appropriate at all for a member of the Security Council. So we can hold them uh, accountable in the context of the UN. I think if we had it within our powers, we'd certainly look at how we could kick them off of the Security Council, but they are a permanent member of the Security Council. They're not behaving uh, with the responsibility that we would expect a member of the Security Council, uh, the way we would expect them to, to behave. Uh, but we also have to know, let them know that is, it is not business as usual uh, for them here in New York. Talk to us what we can expect to see next week at the UNGA. I mean, obviously, um, you will be walking in with a, a full plate uh, of, of uh, an array of agendas, obviously Russia, Ukraine, um, but others as well. What are uh, the priorities as you see them? 
uh, we it will be a frenzy of a week as uh, as you might uh, expect uh, because we expect uh, over a hundred delegations uh, to include heads of state in many of those delegations. What we hope to achieve during this week uh, is to focus the world on three major priorities that we have. The first being food insecurity. Uh, this has been a priority that has been personal for me. I've engaged on this issue since I arrived here over a year and a half ago. Uh, uh, the food crisis has been exacerbated by the war in Ukraine, but it already existed as a result of climate change, as a result of COVID-19 supply chain, uh, chain uh, uh, issues, and then, of course, as a result of conflict. But the war in Ukraine has certainly uh, made uh, an already bad situation even more dire. So we will be hosting uh, a ministerial, uh, working with countries to uh, commit to addressing the food insecurity issues. We had a ministerial uh, back in May, 103 countries signed on to the roadmap that Secretary Blinken presented that uh, required them to commit to making changes in their approach so that we can deal with this issue. Secondly, important to President Biden is to deal with global health. As you know, the uh, Global Fund will be holding a replenishment um, uh, meeting. Uh, the president has committed to assisting with that. Uh, they have requested $18 billion. We have committed to providing $6 billion of that, $1 for every $2 that other countries commit. Uh, dealing with global health, dealing with uh, AIDS, with tuberculosis, with malaria, with future pandemics are extraordinarily important, and that will be a huge priority for us. And then third, related to the speech in San Francisco, we will be looking at UN reform and defending, uh, defending the UN Charter and looking at the future of the UN and how we can make the UN better fit for purpose uh, in the future. Included among uh, the things we will be looking at is Security Council reform as laid out in my speech in San Francisco. You know, and one of our subscribers, uh, Wen Tian Zhang, actually has a question for you on that. Just very quickly, um, what kinds of reforms um, would you like to propose next week to the you know, Security Council? Good. As I, as I stated in, um, in San Francisco, there is more to come. And the president will be laying out uh, his uh, his priorities on that, and so I don't want to get ahead of uh, of the president. But as I noted in uh, uh, in San Francisco, we have uh, six uh, priorities, six commitments uh, that we uh, are, are making, starting with supporting the charter, which I think is key. Secondly, we want to engage with other Security Council members on uh, addressing the threats of peace and security. That's what the Security Council was created for, and uh, the, the Security Council needs to focus more attention on that. Really, a truly important one is we have, have committed to refraining from uh, uh, the use of our veto except in extraordinary circumstances. And I was surprised to, to see that since 2009, the Russians have used their veto 20 times we've used mm. ours four. 
the Chinese have used theirs, theirs 12 in support of the Russians. We want to put human rights in front and center of what the Security Council does. So we will be talking about how we defend human rights in the course of how we address uh, the issues of Security Council reform. We want to enhance uh, cooperation and and inclusivity of, of the council. And then six, we really want to focus attention on advancing the efforts to support UN reform moving forward, including of the Security Council. You know, since you mentioned um, Russia and China and their overuse of the veto power, um, critics of the Biden administration will point out that Washington's policies, in a sense, have brought these two countries closer together this year. Um, do you agree with that? And how, how does that play out at the UN? Uh, I would clearly not agree with that. I think Russia and China have decided that they are going to support each other in their malign efforts to undermine the charter and undermine the United Nations. Uh, the integrity of borders, the sovereignty of nations, the Chinese have always stressed that as a key priority, but yet they have supported Russia. And so we all as members of the, of the Security Council, but also member states in the United Nations have to push back against, uh, against these efforts. And uh, what I have heard since I came uh, to New York is that countries are delighted that the United States is back, that we are uh, taking a leadership role in this, and that uh, our leadership is important for other countries as we address the issues that Russia and China are presenting uh, to all of us at the, uh, uh, at the United Nations. I want to spend a bit longer uh, on human rights uh, since you brought that up as an upcoming priority. Um, and I want to weave in uh, a question from another one of our subscribers, Jim Calley, um, who asks, um, you know, now that the UN report um, has indicated that China has been committing crimes against Uyghurs, um, what happens next at the UN to try and hold it accountable? Well, let me just say uh, first and foremost that we were really delighted uh, when former High Commissioner Bachelet issued uh, the report. We've been waiting for that report for some time. Uh, we're not surprised uh, at what was uh, in the report uh, because it laid out what we had already said to the world about the human rights violations that were being committed by China inside of its own country against Uyghurs uh, as well as others. And so they have been exposed uh, uh, very clearly uh, for these violations. And it is important that they be held accountable uh, to address the issues that have been raised, including having uh, the UN and other um, uh, civil society organizations engaged to address the issues that were uh, outlined in this report. And we look forward to working within the Human Rights Council, as well as in the Security Council and in the broader General Assembly uh, to uh, address these issues. Let me ask you a broader question about China, given you know, how closely you must deal um, with your Chinese counterparts and other Chinese officials. Um, obviously, there is this tension over human rights. Um, there were increased tensions recently between the two countries, uh, provoked in part by um, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Um, and then, of course, you have um, you know, the fact that these two things, plus 
tariff tensions between the countries obviously then uh, makes it much harder to cooperate on other issues such as climate change or, or so many other things that the world needs America and China to see eye to eye on. How has that been affecting uh, your work and cooperation um, with China? You know, there are areas in the Security Council and more broadly in our bilateral relationship where we can uh, cooperate uh, with the Chinese. Climate change is one of those areas where we have worked to cooperate with them. And in areas where we can cooperate, we try to cooperate with the Chinese. But there are areas where we are clearly uh, in uh, competition with each other and areas where we have significant disagreements with each other, and those areas we're not shying away from addressing with the Chinese. Uh, what is happening in Taiwan is clearly one of one of those 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 areas. Uh, our support for uh, the one China policy has been very, very clear. Uh, but we also think in the situation uh, related to to Taiwan uh, that the Chinese overreacted uh, to to that situation. They were not provoked, as uh, as the questioner said. They they made a decision. Uh, to move forward on an agenda that I think put them in a difficult position uh, moving forward. What can we expect, just moving on to another part of the world, I know we have a lot to cover, what can we expect in terms of progress next week um, on, on the Iran nuclear deal? You know, we, uh, we are committed uh, to uh, moving forward on this deal. Uh, our primary goal in, in working on uh, resuming our cooperation uh, with Iran on the JCPOA is that uh, Iran never has access to a nuclear weapon. Uh, and, and we think that this deal is the best way to ensure that. So we're continuing to uh, uh, move forward, but uh, as you have probably heard and seen in the news, things have slowed down a bit, but we're still committed uh, to trying to find uh, a way to uh, conclude a deal. I understand. We'll be looking out for that. Now, um, on the topic of, of nuclear uh, issues, you know, I didn't want to bring up um, the former president, Donald Trump, um, but I do have one question related to him. Um, and that is the issue um, of the news that emerged a couple of weeks ago about a document detailing a foreign country's nuclear program um, that was um, stashed um, at Mar-a-Lago and was uncovered. Um, when uh, it was raided. Has that issue come up uh, uh, among your conversations um, with other ambassadors? Are there now fears about uh, America being able to safeguard important intelligence uh, on and about other countries? The issue has never come up at, in any of my discussions here uh, in New York. I understand. Um, I want to spend a beat on cybersecurity and what the United States and its partners um, at the UN can do to combat um, cyber threats. And I'm thinking here, um, obviously, about Russia, but, but other countries uh, as well. And, and, you know, some of America's greatest weaknesses have been exploited and exposed in recent years, in part um, because of cyber attacks. Um, can you talk us through a little bit about what kinds of moves or plans we can expect uh, next week at the UNGA? 
Look, uh, we are very, very concerned about the possibility of uh, cyber attacks and it's something that we have uh, addressed in the context of the Security Council as one of the possibilities that Russia would use uh, against those that uh, they uh, see as a threat. Uh, we saw an attack on Albania, uh, a really vicious cyber attack on uh, Albania in July. We've identified that that attack uh, came from Iran. Uh, they've had a, a follow-up attack that happened on September 9th. Uh, we're still uh, assessing that, but countries are concerned about the possibility of uh, uh, countries using cyber as, as a weapon of war and as a way of attacking uh, countries. So this is something that is really important to us uh, here in New York. The Secretary General just uh, announced a few months ago a uh, tech czar who will hopefully be looking at some of these issues as we move forward so that we can help countries protect th themselves from these kinds of attacks. But we also have to look at how we bolster our own efforts to protect U.S. resources from these attacks as well. And I'm curious where myths and disinformation fits into this and, you know, what more um, the world community and the United States is sort of leading that agenda at the UN, what more can be done uh, to sort of tackle this problem? You know, we raise, we, we see the Russians uh, attempting to use the United Nations to use the Security Council to promote their misinformation and disinformation campaign all the time and each time they've attempted to do it we've exposed them uh, for that but it is something that we absolutely have to stay in front of we've seen for example uh, the russians going to africa to tell them that the food insecurity issue is a consequence of sanctions that have been put on on russia the truth is we have never sanctioned any agricultural products coming out of, of russia their wheat uh, their uh, uh, cooking oil, uh, their fertilizer, none of that is, is sanctioned, but they have tried to make sanctions as the horrible boogeyman that is the uh, causing the, the food crisis around the world. So we're fighting every day to counter their disinformation campaigns and to provide the, uh, the information that countries need to uh, assess what the Russians are, are putting out there. You know, on that point, uh, I'm just circling back to Russia. Um, how much is Russia to blame for the current food crisis? Um, and, you know, just more tangibly, I know this issue is, is really important to you. What more can Washington do in terms of concrete actions um, to ensure that the world doesn't go hungry this year? Look, we've been clear, the food insecurity crisis didn't start with the, the war in Ukraine. So we had an issue before the war in Ukraine, but what we've seen happen over the course of the past six months is that it has worsened significantly, creating the biggest crisis of food insecurity that we've ever seen. Uh, many countries in Africa and the Middle East depend on 20, 30, uh, percent or more of their wheat supplies from Ukraine and from Russia. So clearly this war has had an impact. We have worked with countries to address the impact. For one, we are the largest 
uh, contributor to humanitarian assistance. More than $3.7 billion, and I'm sure the figure is even higher, we've contributed to World Food Program alone. We've given direct aid to countries uh, across the world to help them to address the problem. We're working with American farmers, with fertilizer producers in the United States, $500 million was given to the Department of Agriculture to support the production of fertilizer, because what I heard when I traveled to Africa uh, a few weeks ago is that many farmers can't plant the their, their crops because they don't have enough fertilizer. The fertilizer is way too expensive. One woman who told me she normally would have planted five acres was only planting one because she couldn't afford the fertilizer. So we're working with them to address those issues, to build capacity to uh, uh, give to farmers so that they can figure out a way around uh, these uh, this situation. And we'll continue to look at ways to provide support uh, to people who are, are, are are feeling the effects of this. I, I saw some figures from WFP that indicated uh, over 800 million people, about 820 million people are uh, not getting uh, full uh, needs of, of uh, nutrition. And that's, uh, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Uh, people should not go hungry. And that is uh, the commitment that we've made to do everything possible uh, to uh, deal with this issue as quickly as possible, including addressing the long-term uh, consequences of food insecurity. And food insecurity is an issue that we care a lot about at FP as well. Our next print issue coming out in a week or so uh, is on exactly that, examining ways that the world can come together um, to fix, uh, to make sure that everyone uh, has enough food. Just one last question for you, Ambassador. I know we're almost out of time. We haven't talked about climate change. I know President Biden um, is convening high-level meetings uh, on clean energy in Pittsburgh. Um, just at the UN, um, do you get the sense that this year has been a bit of a setback um, for climate change mitigation, given everything else going on and given that the world is at war? Now, you know, the commitment to deal with the issues of climate change have not diminished because of the war. So, as you know, uh, President Biden appointed uh, former Secretary of State uh, Kerry to be a special envoy, and I can tell you that uh, uh, Special Envoy Kerry is working relentlessly on these issues. The Secretary General has committed to working on, on climate change and has put together uh, a committee to look at the issues of climate change. So this is not something that has been sidelined uh, because of the war in Ukraine. And as Secretary Blinken says regularly, we have to continue to deal with the rest of the world and to deal with other issues while we're at the same time uh, battling uh, with the issues related to the war on Ukraine. So I would not uh, at all uh, uh, agree that we've somehow sidelined our commitment to, to climate. We're all preparing for uh, COP27 and pouring uh, all of our efforts into assuring that uh, we honor and up our commitments to fight climate change, but also encourage others to uh, ramp up their commitments. Ambassador, uh, we're out of time. So all I'm going to say is thank you very much and good luck next week. Thank you. It was uh, really delightful speaking to you. Likewise, great to have you on.
You've been listening to the latest discussion from FP Live, foreign policy's platform for live journalism. If you're interested in learning more or want to watch the next FP Live, check out our website at foreignpolicy.com slash live. Thanks for listening to Foreign Policy's playlist. Our production team includes Tal Alroy, Laura Rosbrow-Tallam, Rosie Julin, and Maria Jimena Aragon. I'm Ravi Agrawal. Thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with the single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com